0: These are the chronicles of the journey we take together.
1: The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us, Through Through the the wind. Wind Door.
0: mentioned how the music of chapter seven contributes to the narrative style of that chapter let's start talking about how that narrative style is different we're going back to a first person perspective same as all of tiger's eye
2: Mm
0: -hmm. it puts us back into not just the thematic framing but also the mental framing of that story and yet at the same time as I was re listening to it, there was something about it that was surprising to me. The original Tiger's Eye was told to us from a first person perspective as it happened to the protagonists of that story. There was a specific feel to the framing of it that we talked about repeatedly during our retrospective how it's framed as, it is today, or even as we're like going into flashbacks, it is yesterday. We're still experiencing it from a first person perspective, and just the mind is re inhabiting the person of yesterday as events play out. That made sense for an encapsulated story. But since we're adding this narration style to what is far more of an ensemble piece, it has a weird, jarring feel to it because it's this one of these things is not like the others, as they say. And Hmm. the eventual conclusion that I came to as to why it works is that as he is recapping the significant events from Tiger's Eye, it has the feel of oral tradition rather than modern writing. And that comes with different expectations and connotations. It gives the semblance of a narrator, quote unquote, becoming Miguel. As they tell the story, that it's not even necessarily Miguel himself telling the story of what happened to him in Rama, but that a narrator is taking on Miguel's voice in order to retell the story for a new audience before a campfire. The spirit of mm-hmm. this character inhabiting them like an otherworldly spirit would inhabit a shaman or priest or something like that it gives this chapter and its beginning a very strong call me ishmael feel where after you're done reading the story of moby dick and given the biblical nature of our narrator you wonder to yourself if this is a story told at all by an actual person or if this is a form of some biblical parable where an angel has taken on a human form in order to pass on this story so that others can learn from it and not be like foolish Captain Ahab.
1: For as much as we have already been concerning ourselves with the otherworldly and like in this story so far, Crow and Miguel's introduction brings with them the strongest connection to another world so far. We're no longer dealing with reports from government officials or registered cartographers that deliver suppositions on what the nature of these windows are and what ramifications exist due to their presence. Frau and Miguel are of Rama. They bring a piece of that world with them. And we need to feel that immediately. Miguel's change of narration achieves that because in a book, the narration is literally how we perceive the world. So if we're suddenly changing gears and seeing things completely differently, it does feel like we've suddenly just shifted things, like shifted dimensional filters a little bit.
0: It's almost like a less pronounced version of what it's like to, say, have the heptapods try to communicate with humans in Arrival. In that particular Mm. case, the way they perceive the world and the way that they communicate is so different from humans that they need to go bringing the biggest brains to the table to figure out how to even begin communicating at all. Mm. Here, we've already got someone that understands Rama and understands the human world that he came from and can potentially be a filter as you say a communication device through his narration we get to hear from someone who can speak words that you and i that the audience can understand relating the story of rama even though harao herself could not be able to tell this story to the inhabitants of this earth centrum herself like she literally needed to go on her entire journey of Tiger's Eye in order to be able to communicate with one human. It it wouldn't be the same if she was the one entering our world from Rama, regardless of whether she experienced the events of Tiger's Eye or not. She still will likely need Miguel's help in order to interact with this world, because otherwise people are going to be like, ah, it's a huge tiger, kill it!
1: (laughs) I mean... I had this image in my head as Hural is interacting with all the other human characters that we're familiar with. Mm. You know, after spending time with one human, she just comes in slinging a skateboard over her shoulder and says, How do you do, fellow humans?
0: <laughs> Not quite that ridiculous. But the reason I brought up Arrival, which is an extreme version of that, it's almost as if Miguel, who is now someone of both worlds attuned himself more to Rama than he has to his own world. And so, therefore, as these two protagonists from another world come through the portal back into the human one, it's like they're almost carrying a bubble of Rama with them wherever Mm. they go.
1: Yeah, they have a piece of
0: Rama with them. Exactly. And so that is present whenever... Miguel and potentially in the future Harau interact with the world that just because they're in a world that perceives storytelling and time differently than they do, that doesn't change the way they perceive these things. They are going to continue to be true to themselves and therefore also true to the nature, both metaphysical and narrative of that world.
1: Mm. We get to feel like Miguel's growth as well Through all of that We just, we feel not only are these two Emblematic of I mean, it's not just that we see Oh, these are the Rama duo It's (laughs) that Miguel is clearly He originates from our world But he has gone through so much That, like, you feel the character arc Immediately Like, just from his entrance And... That in itself is part of summarising Tiger's Eye. It was a journey, and each of our protagonists brought something back with them as a result. Hence Miguel's comment where he catches his negative way of thinking and he resolves that he has brought back plenty. Like, Mm -hmm. the idea that, oh, my dad's going to be upset with me because I haven't brought back anything. It's like, no, you know what, fuck that. I brought back plenty. Mm -hmm. Also... When you relay a story or a set of events, you find that it's a lot easier to summarise and condense when you have the full picture, which Miguel actually didn't have when he narrated his side of the story back in Tiger's Eye. So this is beneficial to our purposes here at the start of Steamheart, where we're desperately trying to get things going while still striving to balance that with getting people caught up. But it also makes it a different experience from what came before because this is a different point of view explaining the events of Tiger's Eye to the one that Miguel had before he had completed his journey in Rama. Alex had previously said that this chapter is one of the weaker ones in Steamheart as it is primarily a repeating of what we've already experienced or what those who have read Tiger's Eye has already experienced. But I nevertheless feel like there is enough difference to make the experience feel like a new perspective of those events. And Mm. the theme of Tiger's Eye is how, because that one was all about communication, that part of communicating those events differently by taking new perspectives on it is part of internal growth. So I think that this is actually a continuation of the themes of that book in a really profound way. Also, with the best will in the world, if your chapter is just a summary of Tiger's Eye, it's still a version of motherfucking Tiger's Eye, dude. It's going to be fine.
0: Yeah, even though the summary doesn't encapsulate all aspects of it, there are significant parts that the story leaves out. But at the same time, the significance of it being a summary is that As Alex himself would allude to in a later book that we have not covered yet, these are the things the reader needs to know in order to get into the story. They don't need Mm -hmm. to understand the role that Hakka played in Tiger's Eye for the purposes of Steamheart. Hakka is behind in the world that they left. Mm. They are now in new uncharted territory. And the Mm. thing that's significant is the growth that Miguel went through as a part of becoming a part of Hrau's world, and now the dichotomy that's going to emerge from that as Hrau finds herself in Miguel's world, and we have a little bit of a reverse of that experience of her coming to terms with being in a new world, but having chosen to do so because... She considers Miguel to be her son and therefore to consider each Mm. other home, much like the way that word was used in the final moments of Tiger's Eye itself. Mm. And on top of that, the significance of it being a summary means that it also intensifies what I was saying a moment ago about it feeling like oral tradition rather than first person experience, because In this retelling of Tiger's Eye, Miguel knows things about Hrau and the world that the real Miguel did not know immediately in the original novel. It gives Miguel this dichotomy of being both himself and omniscient narrator as a part of the storytelling experience of this chapter. So it all works together very well in terms Mm. of associating an emotional state a feel to the alienness of the world of tiger's eye re-intruding upon this human world with its wendigo and its politics and Mm. just many things that are not yet a part of the world of rama as we understand it
1: i really like that reading of like miguel's been imbued with the power and authority of the (laughs) shamanic storyteller like Mm -hmm. I was going to say not literally, but, like, I do also like the idea of Miguel sort of absorbing powers like he's Mega Man or something like that. <laughs> but... Wait, wait, hold
0: on a second. You've defeated Hakka, you've obtained shamanic power? <laughs> yeah. Is that literally what we're talking about? <laughs>
1: You know, given the finale of Tiger's Eye and how Miguel's interactions and relationship with Haka culminated, it is kind of as if, like, with Haka acknowledging Miguel's existence, identity, and place in this world, Miguel has brought along with him not just the aspects of Rama and Durga tribe that Hrau embodies, but even the aspects of it that Haka is associated with. He is kind of wholly of the tribe in that way, that even the part of it that was the most against him being present in this world, let alone like present amidst Durga tribe, even he's accepted him. And it it also sets Miguel up as a character with a real agency and a certain amount of power within his own rights, because he is the youngest member of the main cast here. Yes, he is fragile by his own admission, but he is nevertheless presented as on par with some of the other characters we've been introduced to already, which considering their sort of pedigree as these like historical sharpshooters or people with cosmic powers in their eye or even just
0: james's or harry's brain setting themselves apart as being heroic yeah
1: that's a real cohort of talent and like people who are impressive so like miguel coming in part of it you would think like what is this kid doing here which is a big part of it but like miguel he is the agent of his own story. He narrates Mm -hmm. these events with a wisdom beyond his years because he has faced trauma and it carries with him. He is capable and dangerous and to be respected. He's not just a helpless child who has wandered into the story.
0: Lest we forget, the title of the chapter is Return of the Hunter. And regardless of the fact that Hrao is a better hunter by nature and by training, Miguel is the one doing the returning. He has earned the title through his own journey. It feels like this ties really well with our next talking point, but before I bring it up, did you ever read um, Susan Cooper's The Darkest Rising novels? No, I don't think so. So this was like a, a series of books that I was utterly fascinated with and fixated on. When I was in middle school, it was like probably one of my first experiences with what would later become termed as like, say, urban fantasy, where it's like the old world is, a, is intruding upon the new modern one. Supernatural forces that held sway in the ancient world are dealing with, you know, an era of time where we have things like phones and cars. It's not super modern like doesn't have like cell phones and computers and everything like that but it's still what we'd associate as the latter half of the 20th century and so therefore isn't the age of goblins and demons and merlin who is a character in that story oh one of our early protagonists of that series is a boy that's only about 11 years old just like miguel himself And what's commented on is that for 11 years old, he has this ageless quality about him that makes him more serious and less childish, less immature than other kids of his age. It's not a story super ahead of its time, as Will comes from an ancient bloodline, and we all know how tired that trope is. But to a young Greg, it was inspirational to see a boy that young, Able to carry the weight of a hero even at that tender age. Someone that could fight side by side with a figure of Arthurian legend and stand his ground against his fear and a lord of the dark. My point is is that associating ourselves with a young person that is far more mature than their age suggests is something that I'm already really fond of because of my own history with it,
2: it yeah could,
0: that that could be well be why if 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 Will Stanton is the character I'm measuring all other kids in all other uh, stories that involve kids against it might mm. explain why I find some version of kids focused media to be frustrating because every time someone I like acts immaturely it just makes me grind to my teeth or something like that And Miguel, even before he enters Rama, is already mentally at such a point where we don't see him as being immature. He is already ready to be molded into a heroic archetype, even Mm. before Harao starts to teach him how to survive.
1: Yeah, as we have discussed in great detail during Mm -hmm. the chapters focusing on his life before Rama and some of the decisions and actions that he took, he's had to grow up far faster than anyone should, and a sentiment that is going to become far too commonplace for people now. uh, Mm -hmm. But you raise a good point that the idea of someone young who is showing a maturity beyond their years, or circumstances have put them into a place where they're caught up in something that means that they have to show agency and that the, all of the maturity that that entails, that is quite a common key to success with young adult fiction. There's a reason that these stories are taken on board and taken to heart, and I'm loathe to give much credit to JK Rowling these days Mm -hmm. but you know that was what made those books have an emotional like resonance for some people was that you were seeing someone growing up and rapidly having to learn a new world quite literally but then in a space of seven years be confronted with all of the worst aspects of it and not only have to live with it but to actively deal with it and confront it Stories like that are important to people. They didn't start with Harry Potter and they won't end with Harry Potter, like, thank God, because Hmm. now we can create our own stories that will either completely ignore these stories and that's fine or take the bits that were of value to us and do something new with it because we are having to adapt far faster than we Hmm. remember ourselves being and we credit... The younger generation were being like it's what always pisses me off when people are saying like uh younger generations are far too fixated with like it's like fuck off like people are growing up faster than they ever have been because we've just have more information to work with and mm-hmm. also the world is far too much in a shit show right now for the kids not to take notice and they are going to have to deal with this so stop trying to silence them whenever they have something to say about it because like they're the ones who are going to fix this certainly not us and certainly not you
0: it does feel like in the last 20 years in particular someone took the uh, old curse may you live in interesting times and just sort of slowly ramped it up harder and harder
1: Mm. you know just the other day i was on the phone with my uncle who's uh living over in Australia and they have also been hit by like storms that were and floods and things like that and he's doing okay. But I was saying to him, like, whoever came up with the adage may always live in interesting times was a disassociated motherfucker. <laughs> um I I fuck that. I want to live in uninteresting times. Like that's that's what I wanna have. <laughs>
0: I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think that there's always a significant story going on and the only Mm. thing, the only difference is how aware or unaware you are of it. That's one Mm. of the conclusions that I've come to about the 90s is that it may have been a time when a lot of people didn't have anything to worry about, but that doesn't mean that nobody had anything to worry about it,
1: Mm. particularly...
0: When we say, oh, it was a it was a time of prosperity. Yeah, not for certain parts of the globe. Just
1: yeah, really for, not. Just for a lot of first world countries. Movie Bob you got an image? Yeah. The nineties sucks. Like there we go. <laughs> um <laughs> So yeah, let's not let the absolute Richter scale shattering disaster catastrophe that the 20s, the 2020s are as a decade mm. distract us from the faults and problems of past decades. Let's not forget those because a lot of them weren't great and a lot of them were kind of responsible for the mess we're in now, so you know. Yeah,
0: exactly. One thing leads to another and Okay, I'm not going to go any further down that tangent because that is going to be way too... Oh
1: no, we got political.
0: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Well, no, it isn't even about getting political. I am happy to get political on this show. (laughs) We are happy to talk about this bullshit, but uh, we have just a few more things about New Century that I want to talk about. And this is still a New Century podcast, so let's talk about New Century things. It makes us feel better overall, if nothing else. Talking Mm. about the real world can be far too depressing.
1: Oh boy has that been true this week. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I I'm sorry I went exactly in the wrong direction that you just said. So let us get to new century.
0: All right. So in line with some of the stuff that you were saying earlier in terms of the feel of Miguel and Rao returning from Rama and entering the story of Steamheart. It actually dovetails really well with one of the final points that I wanted to make. To a certain extent, this chapter feels like a previously unseen part of the hero's journey aspects of Tiger's Eye. On the list that Joseph Campbell came up with for the stages of the hero's journey, this is almost a perfect example of the crossing of the return threshold. Miguel, knowing that he has to return... And yet, not truly feeling at home, something that we see thanks to Miguel's monologue. That's what helped this moment to feel like a true continuation of Tiger's Eye. And once more, I'm reminded of my favorite literary line there are no happy endings because nothing ends.
1: For the penny yes. in the jar.
0: <laughs> <laughs> different penny, different jar, Different, different coin, different jar at this point. <laughs> But yes, it is is a a phrase that I bring up often because it is highly influential to how I view both life and literature. And even though, yes, Tiger's Eye has its happy ending in the way it frames Crow deciding to accompany Miguel through the passage out of her world into his Setting that up is triumphant with the music in the background. Now it's like, okay, they've come through the portal. The dramatic, wonderful music at the end of Tiger's Eye has come to a screeching halt. And now they actually have to deal with the consequences of their actions as seen in Steamheart.
1: Mm -hmm. You know what? If we're going to be invoking the hero's journey, often, and I suspect we will, with this book, I think what we're going to have to do is take the title... Cross out the apostrophe of like the hero's journey, just hop it over one so that it's the hero's, plural, journey. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so. Well, we, that, that, that's the thing is that
0: uh, I'm sure that Alex and Sharon would actually say to us, remember that Joseph Campbell is not the be all and end all. We well, don't actually so. necessarily know that Steamheart maps all that well to Joseph Campbell's list of stuff. It just, it came up as a result of talking about Tiger's Eye specifically. Mm, so and Trust
1: me, I, I know better than to casually and lazily apply the hero's journey in the presence of Alex and Sharon of all people. <laughs> so the hero's journey, as always, is a framework and a structural analysis tool of which there are many. It is a lens through which to examine something, but it's not the only way to do that getting back to your point about how we bring miguel and frow into this story not even moments or minutes after the ending of their previous story it's literally the ending is Mm. their beginning here and it makes me think of the phrase picking up where we left off or where the last film ended and how that has become a common enough way to actually start a sequel Mm Because if you were to take a step back, it's arguably kind of strange that a situation that worked well as an end for one story could serve well as a scenario that can act as the opening to another story. The answer to that functionally comes down to the simple, eloquent truth that you so frequently invoke of nothing really ends, because What we do from one turning point in our lives into the next has just as much potential as the first story we see a series tell. In this instance here, crowd jumping through the portal with Miguel works really well as a simultaneous end point slash beginning point because a window is a connecting point between worlds. It is literally a nexus point between an ending of one story and the start of another. Mm. Crow chooses not to let go of Miguel, that is the end of her story of deciding what's to be done about this mysterious cub from another world. Simultaneously, Miguel is now able to finally return home and face his father after bringing Crow and everything she embodies with him to this world, that is the beginning of their story of facing an uncertain future together and navigating two worlds to find out where their place is.
0: And the significance about this moment
1: is that even though it's the beginning of their story,
0: the first time that we've seen them in Steamheart, it's still true to the overall arching theme of Steamheart the novel being an ensemble piece. Mm-hmm which has brought together several disparate elements already and now is bringing the last of our, well, not quite the last, bringing in more protagonists from more books in, in New Century into the common thread. So while technically the beginning of the story has already happened, Miguel and Harau's story is enough divorced from the rest of the world that we get to have a second beginning as we continue to gather together our Avengers of new century, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if there's a good way to describe that necessarily. Maybe it might be that moment in the Avengers where after Iron Man and Captain America have captured Loki, all of a sudden we hear a thundercrack and we know that heralds the coming of Thor The reason I picked that moment in particular is because Thor is also someone from an alien world, and his entry into this one is equally as dramatic as Hrau's. Sure, we don't see the Rainbow Bridge bringing Thor to Earth, the way Hrau leaps through the window with Miguel, but the crack of thunder works almost as well as a sign that he has arrived.
1: I think we get to indulge with this because we lean into the fact that this is such a swerve we're not necessarily threading things together it's sort of like okay we do have to step away from things there's no way around it so let's just lean into it like hit let's sequelize and get into like what the next part of uh and miguel's story is and what a time to be alive because it gets to be part of this team up moment it's great it's it's like how civil war is simultaneously this avengers sequel and the captain america sequel Mm, it just mm. feels like right that we're getting something that is like it's many things it's Mm. many boxes and as we just mentioned a moment ago it's not completely out
0: of nowhere because chapter seven is literally a transition from the foreboding statement of Mm. thomas at the end of chapter six so just because it's an unexpected Beginning to a new part of the story, it is the very least is heralded by the theme of what was going on in the previous part Mm. of Steamheart so far.
1: I've absolutely seen stories with less setup just be like <laughs> suddenly we're over here now like I've been in, invoking various sort of problematic book series uh this episode I apologize but with Game of Thrones whether you're going for the tv series or the books the first book you're halfway across a different world with a completely different cast of people and mm. names and things and you haven't had a book to get to know any of that so far. So like you're just kind of expected to follow what's going on. I think we're fine to have this is Miguel and this is his purple tiger mummy and they're great. I'm okay with that level of introduction and I think most people would be too I think it's really all about the presentation.
0: If something is done well, then it doesn't Mm. matter that it might be a jarring experience. That's kind of the core of a good subversion. And subversions abound in New Century, but also, I I noticed, in this particular chapter, because as the second half of Chapter 7 was playing out, after Miguel has told his story and they're on the Natchez, we have this moment where the two of them are searching the ship, and Miguel is relating a little bit of a side story about how the Natchez came to be in this place. It's a little bit of a moment of further world building, because we are still very early in Steamheart, and we now get to see some of that happen from the voice of a different person in this particular case. Miguel's relating of the story of the Natchez continues to have that feel of the shamanic storyteller. He tells the story in the present tense as part of his search, even though he adds that he did not actually learn this story till some point in the future. And it further fits into this shamanic voice, because the story he tells is one that warns of human nature in an almost parable fashion. More Hmm. significantly, one of the key aspects of a lot of fantasy stuff out there, a lot of mythic journeys... They're centered around finding treasures and MacGuffins and items of power. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Miguel has to return home in order to find a quote-unquote treasure, and this treasure is utterly useless. It's not valuable as money. It's not valuable as an item of power. It's symbolic of the world that they just came from because of the whole cat motif. Mm. The real treasure is well, only partly in jest, the friends Miguel made along the way. More significantly, the treasure is Miguel's new power that comes from the combination of Harau's teaching and Miguel being true to his own nature, combining those two things in order to become a better version of himself, in order to become the heroic protagonist that he is at the end of Tiger's Eye. The one that faces down Haka, not without fear, but with a certain level of maturity of, of facing his fate. His mm. growth is all internal, and the jeweled egg with a cat inside is an amusing symbol of the journey of Tiger's Eye. But it's like it's almost like a bit of like hanging a lampshade on that moment,
1: rather mm. than being a
0: significant part of the story.
1: I submit to you that in gaining Frau's support, that the real treasure that Miguel has returned with is that he has captured the tiger's eye. (laughs) Oh God! You oh!
0: I knew that there was an expression on your face that I couldn't read, and you were planning.
2: (laughs)
1: I am only half sorry for that. That's a lie. I'm not sorry at all. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Don't lie
0: to me, Toby. Don't lie.
1: (laughs) So Miguel ventured to this frightening haunted wreck with the motivation to find treasure to appease his father. Like, that's the odd thing, is that he has actually found something, and it feels so trivial after (laughs) everything, when, like, before all of this, this would have felt like, this is the best thing I could possibly find here. Not even
0: necessarily, because as he
1: mentioned, a real treasure would be finding something of use. That's also true. It's a
0: subversion of Jaime's eye, but it's also Mm. a subversion of, as you said, the, the original motivation that Miguel came on board.
1: That is very true, and I wonder... I I do wonder I think that his father would be the sort of person who would look at it and say we cannot use this but and, I'll take it anyway uh, yeah I'll take it anyway and he would like chide uh, Miguel and like really not be all that express any gratitude whatsoever but I also can see the scenario where it's actually Miguel who has the practical eye whereas his father would still be clinging to the idea of oh yes we can really get something with this mm. Whatever the case, he came here trying to place himself a little higher in his father's eyes. He was scared of what he might find, but he braved it all the same, finding that its contents were beyond anything he could have imagined or predicted. On his return, Miguel specifically says that the ship no longer scares him. The bodies are of course off-footing and sickening, but all the same Miguel is no longer frightened. Part of that is because he has gotten stronger, braver, and has support. But another sad part of it is that he has faced death with more proximity than anyone his age ever should, in that he inflicted it. This chapter ensures that we know this because of what he remembers, what in his summary of Tiger's Eye also the treasure no longer has that sparkling allure that it once had which drew him to the ship initially. He knows what is valuable and it's not this jeweled item he finds. What he has come back with, as you pointed out, is internal and that can never be articulated by something so crude as a fancy object of no practical worth to him. As such, the idea of this being some kind of cave of wonders holding life-changing treasure that is guarded by fatal magic or traps is no longer present. This is just an inert place where tragic things happened. Don't fear the dead, fear the living." Hmm.
0: That's a hell of a note to end that particular thought on. (laughs) The one thing that I want to end on myself in terms of thinking about The contents of chapter seven. Miguel began his story in Tiger's Eye, seeking, as you say, approval and by extension, a level of agency as a result of the treasure he hoped to find on the Naches. Without necessarily putting it into words, he was seeking. What he had lost, he was seeking a real family.
2: Mm. And he's got
0: that now. He's got that in a way that his father could never be. Francisco Delgado stopped being a father the moment he abandoned the rest of his family to the Wendigo. And Miguel was from that point on only a tool to him, as the boy was not capable of standing on his own. Miguel can now do that, even without the support of Rao. She is physically with him, and we are happy for it. But even if she were not, she would always be with him in a way that Francisco never was. That sort of connects a little bit with your words about fearing the living. Mm. Considering it, he probably should have no reason... To fear his father at this point his father in theory would hold no sway over him anymore he is now capable of surviving without his father where he might not have thought himself able to do so before but just because he understands that intellectually it doesn't mean that he can just wipe out all of the trauma that he experienced mm. at his father's hands And so, therefore, even if part of him thinks that he might be going back to his father for assistance or to resolve what was left behind, what he really just needs is, to a certain extent, to just look his father in the face and find the closure that his mind needs before continuing on with Hrow.
1: I mean, God knows that when people are able to finally find whatever it is they need to have a very difficult conversation to excise something from their lives that they need to excise that doesn't mean that they do so without fear like Mm -hmm. the idea that you can do something that you have strength but aren't afraid of it anymore that's not really the case it just means that you're able to face it in spite of whatever fears you may have Whatever the case, whatever realisations and clarity he has about his father, what he knows is that there will be some sort of shifting. A change is imminent. Whatever the outcome, whatever him going home to his father entails, and we as a reader will most likely know that Miguel isn't moving forward with his father. He's moving forward with Rao. But Miguel can't know that just yet. He has to go home and face whatever changes ahead of him first. Mm-hmm. And he has to finish his hero's journey. Literally, he on. has to. He has to finish it. And it just means that when we come back to it, it's like he stepped through the portal between two worlds. But you know, that's kind of easy. It, having a conversation with your asshole dad. That's kind of a like. A, something a lot harder than any interdimensional Mm. thing whatsoever and that's the sort of real crux of it but you have your emotional support cat mum so you know you'll be absolutely fine
0: you're always going to be most affected by your parents regardless Mm. of whether you had a good experience with them or a poor experience with them the ties and the feelings that are associated with them are always going to be some of the hardest you ever have to deal with because mm. they are implanted in you during a time where you can only process them imperfectly.
2: Mm. And
0: even though Miguel is still only a tender 11 years old, he has reached some level of adultness, and mm. he is now capable of processing his experience with his father Mm. in a way that some of us take decades to figure out
1: you know what to to bring it back to just what these chapters are which is that for us they're significant because we've read tiger's eye but they're set up so that if you haven't you can still be equipped and you know so let's imagine this chapter if we hadn't read tiger's eye and miguel and his story is all new to us Mm. we're mining so much emotional pathos and introspection drama like and impact from one chapter here i really do think that this works as a way to get us on board because this kid from another world seemingly and a purple tiger up from another world that's all really sort of out there but this this thing right here this interpersonal drama and friction mm-hmm. that is entirely familiar and entirely mm-hmm. of our world and that's how you can connect to him So a young kid going through that, we're endeared to him. And the fact that Hrål is there for him means that we're endeared to her. So even if you have zero connection to Tiger's Eye, focusing on Miguel, as much as we have the bias to think, oh, you want to focus on Hrål because there's so much there. It's like, Mm -hmm. yes, there absolutely is. But Miguel, I think is the right person to focus on, on the two of them first.
0: Yeah, because he's the connecting tissue.
1: Yeah. He is the it, one precisely that,
0: he is the one that is of both worlds, so to mm.
1: speak.
2: And
0: we'll we're going to get to Faro's voice soon enough. Um I forget exactly when her narrative voice first enters the story. It may be as we head into part two, but I haven't gotten to the re listen of that yet. Mm. In the meantime, we've got another trio of chapters coming up, which we're going to be covering during our next Skype session. Mm-hmm. For however many episodes that takes up, it's going to be chapters 8, 9, and 10. They are thematically linked. And after that, we are actually going to cover 11 and 12, the last two chapters of part 1, and then the first chapter of part 2, Homeward Bound, which is actually the next time we check in on... Miguel and Rao. We're going to be able to expand on some of the stuff we've talked about in the last few episodes with the events of the uh, upcoming chapters. It's going to be very exciting. I feel like it's been a little bit rocky in places as uh, we've tried to make our points, and, but at the same time, keep them contained to the specific chapters we're talking about but Mm. I'm going to end up wanting to talk a lot more about how Thomas is interacting with other people Mm. talking about some of the resonances. I want to talk a little bit about how it took me a very long time to understand that Abigail is a version of Malcolm Reynolds and how that informs (laughs) upon some of her character beats in both the chapters you've already covered and the chapters we're going to cover. I don't feel like we've quite hit our stride yet in terms of covering Steamheart in general, but I'm very excited about uh, some of the talking points I'm planning on bringing up in the near future.
1: Mm. I mean, this set of chapters we've been looking at for this session mm-hmm. has been very broadly focused because it has been summaries of yeah, yeah. like multiple books. So us sort of straddling the line of containing ourselves to these chapters is particularly an issue because we are kind of considering new century more broadly as we go forward it's going to be back to a lot of specific in the moment developments and character interactions that can help us to sort of railroad us a bit more to Steamheart itself as it develops so mm. i think we're in a good position with that
0: yeah Also, are we going to continue this amusing theme of pretending we're different podcasts by stealing the opening from other members of the Fireside Alliance? Who knows? (laughs) I may decide that uh, the joke is run its course and we may stop doing it, but uh, it's not yet.
1: (laughs) Mm. That's for future Greg and Toby to decide.
0: Yeah, exactly. Thank you for listening to us, Natteron. I hope you're enjoying our hot takes on Steamheart. And we'll see you next time on another trip through the Windar. Take care. Okay, seven chapters down and 35 to go. Before we close out, there are outtakes after the outro, so enjoy those if you like them. And I'd want to add that regarding our conversations about Miguel's father, a lot of it is informed by the full Tiger's Eye novel. Chapter 7 by itself does not give a new reader the full context for why Toby and I, as well as any other long-term reader, know that Francisco Delgado is merely a loose end that needs to be tied off. The chapter hints at it by saying that clearly Francisco did not come searching for Miguel, but Chapter 13 is needed as much for character closure as reminding us why he is means and not end. The mining that we supposedly did is quite honestly full of nuggets left over from the previous book rather than this one, but nonetheless, it gives us the introduction we needed for the final protagonists of our book. To close us out, a cover of one of my favorite Phil Collins songs that was released just one month ago. The lyrics are a little bit resonant of the coming confrontation with Francisco, and the chorus is not unlike what I was feeling after finishing The Christmas Thieves in mid-2019, and still had to wait a few more weeks before the entirety of Steamheart would be available for me to devour. Until next time, this is State of Mind with In the Air Tonight.
1: not especially a fan of you all right
0: yeah no i just uh accidentally leaned on the um, volume control on my headset
1: all right so did i was i coming in very loudly
0: no you're coming in very quiet like all of a sudden like like your voice is me being quiet
1: that is that's how you know something is wrong yeah that's that how, is. Yeah. yeah well thank you dear um <laughs> uh I haven't Um, seen
0: Army Hammer in many roles. The one thing that I did see him in was that he was playing the husband of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the depiction of Ruth's first case before the Supreme Court, before she was actually a Supreme Court justice, but when she was heralding a case that was being brought to the Supreme Court. And the thing is, is that Mr. Ginsburg, her husband, is one of the nicest people out there.
1: Ah, uh, like yeah. I've seen mm.
0: depictions of him talking in public, the actual person, because I saw a Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary, and he's like the perfect person to be the husband to one of the symbolisms of empowered women making a difference in the world. So
1: mm-hmm. he that's unfortunate, even
0: though he's cat, even though he, for the most part, as I recall does a very good job of playing the character, it's hard not to remember that, oh, yeah, this is the guy that's abusive in relationships. In real
1: life. It just, like, I mean, this is a conversation we've had many times before and will continue to have, and it's important that these conversations are repeated because the point is that, like, we live in an information age and there needs to be a culture of this not being okay because even if it's motivated entirely by self-interest. If it just says to celebrities, don't be a dick. Think about the impact you have by your conduct. It feels so bizarre to me how easy it would be to just not be a dick. But then again, maybe that's just me talking. I don't know. Yeah. Legends Arceus was this re- remarkable thing that, like, usually when there's a new game that comes out, it's like, they call it, like, Gen 5, Gen 6, Gen 7. And that's, like, when there's a whole new 80 to 100 Pokemon that are introduced and, mm-hmm. like, you get to and go through. Two to
0: three versions of the game so that you can't
1: get them, you literally can't get them all without working with somebody else. you you got uh, got to buy them i mean catch them all greg (laughs) um and so what happens is because we're a two person team on this Mm -hmm. and i imagine a lot of the fine folks on the discord who are fanatics of the series as well are in a similar situation with their significant others where one will get one version of the game, and the other will get the other version. And usually, what happens is that Sarah will get first pick, and I'll just get the other one. So, <laughs> I'll, like with, so, like sun and moon, it's like, oh man, the one that's moon is really good. And so it's like dibs. And I'm like fuck. <laughs> 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 we absolute we will complain about all the things and we'll buy both versions of the game because we're sheep. We're absolute sheep. In fact, we're <laughs> wooloos. That's what we technically are. <laughs> um, I was I
0: was literally about to say. Okay.
1: You know what? I should have like I've been playing through um Sword and Shield which is the one with Woolu at the mm-hmm. moment and I should have called the one that evolves uh Greg in like cuz knowing your <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, my, your my, my love for the soft round
1: boy, yes, exactly. He's, he's very good. The the, ev- the evolution is by no means like quite as sharp a design, but I quite li- kind of like. You yeah. quite like the evolution. Like he's not my favorite, though. Greg can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah, uh, I said he's amazing. He's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Here, Toby is showing me a new t-shirt he just got. Wow, okay. So, Godzilla is treating the remains of a city as like a tempura bowl or something like that.
1: Absolute, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> he is. And I thought that was excellent. And the, thunder the
0: HMV, the company that you're talking about, did mm-hmm. used to be here in in the U.S., um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it um, it went downhill, and so now only ex- operates exclusively in the UK. Right. But the HMV is actually based on a painting called His Master's Voice.
1: Oh, His Master's, not Majesty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just British conditioning. I assumed that uh, yeah. the, the the royalty a certain, had a yes. role. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, the um. The, the painting was of a of a uh, a terrier mixed dog named Nipper listening to the gramophone, and mm. the reason why it was familiar to me is that that painting was also used as the trademark and logo of a um, an audio company called RCA Victor.
2: Really? Which went,
0: yeah, which went on, of course, to be uh, a record label, which is now owned by Sony at the moment.
1: So that image. That's... Is used in really two different ways. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I I can't think. Of, like, has that never has that ever been like a legal dispute over that? Because it feels as, because in a weird way, neither of them have like full ownership of the original image, right? Because it's based on a well, painting. I think
0: but that yeah, that's the thing is that they don't use the actual painting; they use an image based on the painting. So I suspect. Mm-hmm. They adjusted the trademark slightly.
1: HMV got an NFT <laughs> of the painting.
0: A long before NFT, but yes. <laughs> As it turns out.
1: Wow, is this true? Okay, hold on. Hot news coming through the window. <laughs> oh, okay.
0: That explains it. Okay. So, the original company that used this image as a logo was the Gramophone Company Limited, based in the UK, and was the European affiliate of the American Victor Talking Machine Company. So, they used to be connected.
1: Right, right, okay, that explains it. Okay, so that's why there wouldn't have been more of a fuss made. Got I mean, it.
0: all of that was also long before trademark in general. But I suspect that's why they never got into conflict as soon as that part mm. of the world was established, because they did have a history of once being the same company. So okay. fascinating little uh, little dive into history yep. there.
1: The more you know,
0: Rainbow Star. <laughs>
1: Alright, Glasses on to increase my intelligence scores by
0: I mean technically 0.5. It, it, it technically increases your perception by one if you're going by ah, that's statistics. Yeah. That's
1: that's true, <laughs> yes.
0: Actually hold on one moment here. I just want to refresh my
1: memory. Um, oh, I like it when you speak close to the microphone, Greg. <laughs> Nighttime edition. Mm. After. Put a up. penny in the jar. I'll put a penny in your jar.
0: <laughs> oh dear. I <laughs> hate myself.
1: Oh, no, no. I, I ruined it. You no. made it weird. <laughs> But on the points that he still can't fully sign off on their verifi- verifi- verifiability, I got there in the end. Um, the speaking of games that like I associate with you and like I should sort of consider getting into just so I can talk about it with you. Great news about Haven. That was yes, great. same-sex
0: relationships.
1: Fantastic, it's amazing. I yeah, love- I what a way to just sort of it, like you can apply that to any game, and it's a big improvement. Like mm-hmm. always a good thing, and particularly with that game. I've only spent like thirty minutes with it. I can say that this is exactly the sort of game that benefits from it.
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing is that the relationship between the two characters is the central focus of the story. Mm-hmm. So if the mild change of making the relationship more tailored to what The player's experience is going to be, yeah, help them get into the game, then you fucking do that,
1: yeah, and like also mild change is sort of putting it lightly like a mild change, and even this is understanding it is the fact that in in Shovel Knight, you can actually hand tailor specifically the genders of every single character in the game, yeah, like you can make Lady Shovel Knight or like Mm -hmm. whatever the case, and the love interest can be uh, Shield Knight or a prince yeah whatever your like thing is like you can do that and like that's that's really cool but like you're still dealing with like sprite art and that which does require work i am not understanding that Mm -hmm. haven is a lot of dialogue and a lot of voice acting Mm -hmm. i have to assume that's At least two new voice actors for Mm. the character who wasn't previously male and the character who wasn't previously female you get in new people to record dialogue for that that's a lot that's a lot of stuff there so yeah kudos to them because that is their heart in the right place it Mm -hmm. really is yeah brilliant yeah